coming up. There we go. Um, we had something really sad happen um, in the life of the church this week. A family that have, um, they really haven't been a, a massive part of what's going on in the world of life. They've been on the periphery a little bit. But um, they, um, the mother has been a part of Linda's um, mother's group. And uh, they've got a, a little baby girl who has been quite sick. She's actually been, had meningitis and some of the brain damage because of it and has gone blind and deaf. And um, this week, then we got a call from um, the mother to say, Andrea, to say that um, the baby was in ICU in hospital. And so I went around to go see her and the father, Evan, and pray for them and pray for the baby. And by the time I got there, the, um, the um, kind of life support had been switched off. And it was, at least God intervened supernaturally, she was going to go to be with God. And uh, the early the next morning, baby Tia passed away. And uh, I wonder if just for a moment, I mean, you, you don't know them, I'm sure maybe some of you do, um, but we know what it would be like, or maybe we don't know what it would be like. We can imagine perhaps what it would be like to go through that kind of thing. We're doing the funeral here on Sunday. They're going to have friends and family here. And we really just want to serve them and love them and be what God wants to be to them through this time. And so I'm going to ask you to get out of your comfortable position. Just stand with me for a second. Listen to this family up to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. There is no pain too deep, Lord God, no alienation, no betrayal, no hurt, no disappointment that you cannot minister into. And as your word says, that the foot of the waterfall deep calls to deep. There's something about the inner working of your spirit that is beyond our ability to fathom it. And Heavenly Father, I pray now for this um, mother and father. I pray for their, um, their family, Lord. I pray for their friends. They've all been deeply hurt and wounded by this Lord, we thank you, though, that right now, baby dear, is with you, Lord God, that, that uh, somehow in ways that we cannot understand, Lord God, she is, um, she is now a person with, with all that that entails, standing before you, no longer sick, no longer brain damaged or blind or deaf, but completely healed before your throne. And though, Lord God, there is such a great sense of loss at this time for that family, we pray that they would be comforted in the sure knowledge, Lord God, that there is a great reunion to come one day. I pray, Father, that you would give them the peace that your Son promised, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that the world cannot give. It's not circumstantial, it's not psychological, it's supernatural, it's spiritual. It flows from the throne of God. I pray that you would pour that out upon that family. And I pray, Lord God, that as the staff of this church, serve that family on Sunday, Lord God, by hosting this funeral here. As we get the privilege, of God, of loving upon them and uh, sharing the word, we pray that you be present tangibly and manifestly. And I pray, Lord God, that this would just remind us, Lord God, of what it means to be the family of God here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So welcome, um, welcome all our regulars, part of the guys and ladies of the family, welcome our visitors, it is good to see you here. Andre, it's nice to see you without an interpreter, good luck today. <laughs> Andre speaks Russian and normally has a friend interpreting for him, so um, 
And welcome to you that are passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And welcome to those that are kind of peeking over the fence, trying to figure out who this Jesus is and, and what's kind of going on. And I, I love the fact that a person can be on a spiritual journey and before they even believe, they have the opportunity to be welcomed and loved. And I hope if you are in that place, if you are searching out the claims of Jesus, if you are trying to understand what it means when people talk about things like being born again or even what salvation means, I hope that World of Life is a place where you feel safe and secure and, and accepted as you go on that journey. But it is our fervent passion that you will come to the point in that journey of meeting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And uh, we're going to continue our series this morning called We Are it's our We Are series. It's a series we've been through three already. We are sons, we are worshippers, we are servants. And today we're going to look at the last one of the series, which is We Are Messengers. And I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, if you don't mind just pulling those out. And uh, let's read together. It says here, and I want you to just, the context here is Paul has written a letter to a church that he's planted. And what is going to come through in this, as we read it, is that the degree to which this love of God and this gospel has absolutely shaped Paul's life. He says here, for the love of Christ controls us. To stop there, eh? For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Beautiful. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciles us reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was re- reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us, friends, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we're going through this series, and it's actually a series about identity. And it's a little bit different, perhaps, to some of the series we've done before around the subject of identity, and, um, because it is such an important subject. Because what you, who you believe you are is going to shape the way that you live your life, the way that you interpret the circumstances, the way that you relate to God, the way that you relate to other people. And so it's a, a massive part in a, of our lives and a massive subject. But um, this one is expressed also in terms of how we, not just who we are, but how that affects how we live. And so we're not teaching through the series of what you need to do. My brother used to be a part of a cult. And uh, they used to monitor his, like, who he shared the gospel with. He had to kind of report back every week on who he shared the gospel. He phoned me one day, I was in South Africa, and he was in London, and said, I was so down on the phone. I said, hey, brother, what's wrong, man? So he goes, no, I sat next to somebody on the train today, and I didn't share the gospel with them. I'm like, 
Yeah, it's, it's okay. It, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be every single person you ever see. And when I share this today, we are the messengers. It's not because I want you to go and go, oh, get home and go, oh, I didn't share it with this person, or I didn't share it with that person. Like it's something that you have to do. I want to share it today and understand that your identity is that of a messenger. And the more you are yourself, and the more you are who you were created to be, it's just going to flow out of your life, this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Take, for example, a woman who has children. What do we call those people again? A mother, that's it. That's part of identity that she's a mother. And there's all sorts of things that she might do. It's like she might um, cook and clean and hug and read to the children, or whatever it is that she might do as a mother. But it's not the things that she does that makes her a mother. She does them because she is a mother. And so from her identity as a mother flows these actions. And I trust that through the series you can understand that your identity as a son and as a worshiper, and as a servant, and as a messenger, cause these actions to naturally flow from you. A mother doesn't go and say, well, let me check my to-do list. Oh, I need to love my children today. I need to give them a hug. I need to, I need to you know, if they, if they hurt themselves, I need to fix their wounds. That just happens because she's a mother. And I trust that as we get into this today, as we look at the journey of Paul into this gospel reality that we will recognize that actually, friends, we are that message. See, because the gospel has come to us and transformed us. And so our story has become the message. You don't have to go out there with some crib notes or the things that you have to share. The gospel has come in and impacted your life. And the same way that one day we will be in heaven, and for all eternity, our salvation, who we are now as the sons and daughters of God, will bring glory to God. It's like you don't even have to raise your hands and worship Him, but we will because we worship Him. Our very lives will be the proclamation of the glorious gospel that has brought us to salvation and reveals the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the justice of our King. So let's look at Paul. We're going to kind of go with him in three steps on his journey. The first is that our story is the message. The second is that God's love is for all. And thirdly, is that we need to run with this message of reconciliation. So verse 16 says this, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And so, I don't know if you know this, but Paul, before he met Christ in a saving way, hated Jesus and hated those that followed him. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, it tells us that Paul, whose name was William Saul, had held the cloaks of those that stoned Stephen. And he thought that Jesus was an imposter. In his mind and in the mind of many Jewish people, the Messiah was going to come as a political uh, ruler that was going to set them free from Roman occupation. It was going to do what David and Solomon did, this, this warrior king that would come and, and restore the glory of Israel so other nations would kind of bow before them again and they would be seen like, look how great we are. And yet Jesus comes, born of a virgin in a stable, like, as an ordinary man. And, uh, and Paul... I would say in his heart, because of the passion with which he persecuted the followers of Christ, I believe he hated what Jesus stood for. And he considered the crucifixion probably as good riddance. Thank goodness this, this, rebe- this rebellious leader, this imposter, has been set aside. But then he encounters Jesus. We go one chapter further in the book of Acts. We count, he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And um, 
if you've read the story, you know that what happens is he's riding along on his donkey or whatever it is, and he's, he, he encounters the risen Lord. This light shines. This is one of those dramatic salvation moments. He falls off his horse, and uh, he can't see anything because of the brightness of the light. And he hears this voice of Jesus as he speaks to him and calls him to him. And at that moment, I believe, Paul surrenders his life to Christ. He comes to, to the realization that the way that I regarded him before from a worldly point of view is no longer true. He is truly the risen Lord. He is truly the Messiah, the Christ. And uh, as his natural eyes failed at that point where he went blind from that moment until hands were laid upon him and he could see again, his spiritual eyes opened up. And uh, he no longer saw Christ the way that he saw him before. And there are so many different messages that come at us about who Jesus is. I don't know if any of you have read the books or seen the movie The Da Vinci Code. Tom Hanks is one of my favorite actors, but I still haven't bothered to, to watch the movie. It's a little bit like Harry Potter. A lot of fuss, and then when you see it, it turns out to be nothing at all. Not that entertaining, even. But there's a, it paints a picture of Jesus that is different to the picture of the Scriptures. And then you come across these guys called the, the Jesus Seminar. They were... The, the leftovers of liberal theology, and they tried to discover who the real Jesus was by removing every supernatural aspect from the gospel story. They kind of said it like this: Look, we we bright people, we know that those kind of things don't take place. I mean, you aren't born of virgins. I mean, that's okay. We can cut that out. You know? and, and obviously, you can't heal people that are sick supernaturally. And so that comes out, and this comes out, and that comes out, and they end up with this this Bible that's hacked to pieces and this Jesus that resembles nothing like the Jesus that the Scripture records that he is. And part of the journey of us becoming these messengers is first and foremost that we see Jesus for who he is. The book of Hebrews tells us that he is the, um, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus wasn't a, just a good teacher. He wasn't just a, a good philosopher. Jesus was the Messiah who came to sacrifice his life that we might have eternal life. It leads us to the second part of the revelation that we need to come to is what has Jesus done for us? And first and foremost, he has reconciled us to God the Father. In verse 19 of that passage I read, it says here, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. You turn on the news today, you pick up a newspaper, you open your, your news blog on your iPad or whatever it is, um, whatever you use to catch up with the news, and one thing becomes apparent to us is that this world is broken. And you think to yourself, man, has it ever been this bad? And the truth is, it's always been this bad. It's just different degrees of brokenness and, and it's hidden at times, but we live in what the Bible calls a fallen world. And the reason why there is so much brokenness, and no matter how many iPhones you buy, it doesn't help your marriage. And no matter how many subscriptions you have to this, it's not going to help you be a kinder person or a more merciful, merciful person. No matter how good the machines are in the hospitals, people are still dying of this and dying of that, all sorts of things. We live in a fallen and broken world. And the reason for that is, is sin. And that is the bad news, is that we are, we are sinners who live in a fallen and broken world. But what we see around us is only a part of the story of the damage that sin has caused. Because the Bible tells that our sin has brought a separation between us and God the Father. 
And the reason is because God is holy. And it's hard for us to understand even what that, for me as well, to understand what that word means. I mean, imagine you, Isaiah the prophet. I think you've probably got a pretty good idea of what the holiness of God means, eh? I mean, you're standing up, you're in the council of kings, you're telling them what God's saying, you're prophesying over this nation and this nation, and that's what's happening in the first five chapters of Isaiah. This great prophet, and you think he understands the holiness of God. Then this king, who's his cousin as well, dies for one day, he's really sad, he goes to the temple, and he's worshipping God in the temple and praying. And suddenly the Bible says the heavens open up, and he sees the Lord, as the scripture records it, high and lifted up, with the robe of the train of his robe filling the temple, and the, the cherubim are, are, are crying out these words: "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty!" And they just cry out again and again and again. And they're not on, like on repeat. You know, like some of you set the song. You really love the new Adele song that's come out, and so you play it 63 times until you you go to despise it. You ever hear that again? You go mad. You know, God doesn't have the angels on repeat. Okay, let's go for holy, holy, holy for the next while. For 600 years, holy, holy, holy. It's actually, the angels are seeing it and they're just declaring what they see. And God is infinite and His holiness is infinite. And it's kind of like, they, I mean, I'm just imagining it. That these, these cherubim are there and these, these creatures that we hardly even know what they are. They see God. And they go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the other one's kind of over here with his wings and his eyes and action like this. And, and he's like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's not required. It's inspired. They, they can't help themselves. And Isaiah sees this and he realizes the problem. He says, he says, woe is me. And I don't know what that is equivalent in, in, um, in today's language. They're like, my goodness. Or if, if, we, were in, if we were texting, OMG, I'm in trouble. He's like, like, what, what am I going to do? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And when, and when God brought all the ceremonial laws through Moses to Israel, it wasn't because he liked particularly clean plates or clean garments or, you know, that he wanted. It, all of those things had their benefits. But the reason why there were the, 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 the religious vestments, and you had to wash your hands and your plates before you ate, and you couldn't go into the presence of God if you did this, or you went into the presence of God and you did that. It was not about those specific things, and we know it was, and because when Jesus came, he abolished all of those things. What were they there for? They were to teach Israel, and from Israel, the world, about the holiness of God, that he is other than just the orderliness that has been affected by sin. And so the bad news is that we are like Isaiah, crying out, Woe is me. We are a people with unclean lips who live amongst the people with unclean lips. And Romans 3.23 says that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And there is a judgment day coming one day as a point for all men to die once and then to face the judgment. And there we won't be getting scales, people. Our good works weighed up against our bad works. Like I stole 50,000 from work, but I gave 50,003 dirhams. To charity. So I'm, I'm good. I mean, I'm, I've got to go to the. That isn't how it works. Our, our good works, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. And the, so we, we stand before God one day and we will give an account for our sin, except for this that there is good news as well. And the good news is that God, as we read in the scripture, has made a way that we might be reconciled to God the Father. Through the death of Jesus Christ, we are brought back into relationship. There is a, a yearning in the heart of God for restoration of relationship. 
in verse 21 it says this, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's like if this is you and I, and we are covered by our sin like this, what God does, and I'm stealing this illustration from Nicky Gumbel from the Alpha Course, what God does is he, he takes our sin and he puts it upon him who had no sin. So that all of our attitudes and actions, all of our uh, lusts and perversions and rebellion and whatever it is that is contrary to the holiness of God was put upon Jesus Christ. The only one that lived a sinless life that didn't deserve death, he became sin. Him who knew no sin became sin. And so upon him he bore the judgment that that sin deserved. God is never going to sweep us sin under the carpet. If you're thinking one day, well, when I get to heaven, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty persuasive. I can sell ice to Eskimos. Oh, when I get there, I'm going to convince God that he, and he's going to let me in. God will not be unjust. He will not take our sin and sweep it under the carpet. Both our sin against one another, but more importantly, friends, it's our sin against Him as a holy God. Some people say, well, as long as I balance it out here, but what about the, the infinite nature of our sin against an infinite God? And uh, God has, he, he, he took that sin, He placed it upon His Son. He, he brought justice upon that sin, which Christ bore in His body upon the cross, so that the sin would be paid for. And Martin Luther, I think it was, was called the great exchange, that our sin is placed upon Christ, and remarkably, the righteousness of Christ is placed upon us. So that when God the Father looks at us, He doesn't just see us, we've come down to ground zero again, at least we haven't sinned, and hopefully I don't sin too much before I get to see Him one day, or maybe I can I better ask Him forgiveness every five minutes to make sure. No, no. He puts upon us in status the righteousness of Christ, because none of us are actually as righteous as Christ. We know that. In my best days, no, actually I'm pretty good in my best days, but I do have bad days as well. And, and all of us know that sin continues to be a reality. So how come we are so accepted and loved by God? It's because the righteousness of Christ, His righteous status is placed upon us. So that at any point when the Father looks down upon you or me, He sees us as He sees His own Son, Jesus. That has to be the best news any people could ever possibly hope for. Lastly, we see that He's made us a new creation. Verse 15 says this, Those who live do no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. And Paul used to live for himself. He, was, he, was, um, he didn't want anybody interfering in his life. One of the theologians says that apart from God, we live inwardly curved lives. That's what sin is. It's us wanting autonomy. It's about me. And little children don't get taught. If you don't teach your children to be selfish. You teach them to share. That's why we have Barney, the purple dinosaur. Barney says sharing is caring. We play it and we try to teach our children because their natural way is actually <clears throat> take it to themselves. That's mine. I want it. And that's what sin is. It's what we, we learn. It's in us. It's in our blood. And even if we are the, the best the most compliant of children, we manifest in one way or another. But when we come to Christ, he transforms us, as Paul says here. One of the things, one of my favorite, favorite authors is a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. He was an Englishman who came very reluctantly to Christ. In fact, he was, um, I remember reading his book, Surprised by, Surprised by Grace. Is this what it's called, eh? Joy, Surprised by Joy. 
And um, I mean, the whole book, actually, he doesn't even talk about coming to Christ in this whole He writes the whole book, it's only just him coming to believe that there's a God. He hasn't yet come to Jesus. But it's this journey from childhood all the way to the point where he comes to the realization that there is a God. And then right at the end, he talks about how he, anyway, I'm getting distracted. But, but he, he hated the idea of God interfering in our lives. And he, he wrote this. He says, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me to be the transcendent interferer. You say, why can't Jesus mind his own business? Why can't I just live my life my way? He goes on to say this. If this picture was true, then no sort of, it's a bit complicated, but it really is precious to listen to. If this picture was true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence, God with a notice, no entry. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and it is mine only. Lewis, as he went on, had his eyes open to how living for ourselves is hell. And as he wrote this, the one principle of hell is this, I am my own. You see, God is bringing us into this place where actually we are His. That when we come to Christ, and we sang these songs this morning, I come, um, your grace receives me just as I am, empty-handed, but alive in your hands. We come with offering nothing. We come to Him utterly empty-handed. If you come into Jesus thinking, oh, the church needs me, then I'm friends, you've come the wrong way. Or you're coming like, at last, Jesus got a good one. You know what I mean? That's, that's a, we are, we are utterly devoid of any goodness and value apart from what Christ has put into us and what He redeems in us. And so we come to Him empty-handed. And Jesus is the divine interferer. The reason why He does it, well, the reason why He seems to be interfering in our business is because we are His business. He's our creator, and He loves us too much to leave us to our own devices. He, he barges through the no-entry sign to come in and break into our lives. And maybe He's doing that this morning with you. Maybe He did it a long time ago with you. But he is the transcendent interferer. And uh, he continues, even from our salvation onwards, to speak into and work into our lives continually. The second part of the journey for Paul is this, is that God loves all. And in verse 14 it says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. If you've had an opportunity to read through the book of Acts and read about Paul's life, I will read through the book of Corinthians where he lists some of the things that he went through. You would know that this man suffered extraordinary, extraordinarily in his proclamation of the gospel. Paul did not seek prestige and power. Well, even if he did, he never got it. You can tell that from the scriptures. He was beaten and whipped and left for dead and shipwrecked and left naked and he was, he was starving and left out in the heat and in the cold and various other things. He traveled from city to city, suffering great deprivation, that he might carry this gospel message to people. And the reason for that was because he was compelled by the love of Christ. The, 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 the love that Jesus has, that God has for all people, came into Paul's life and compelled him to action. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus surveying those, the crowd that are following him. And it says, it says that he, they, looked, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he had compassion on them. Compassion means, compassion only comes when you really see. 
you can kind of casually look across a group of people, and you might have sympathy, you might have sadness, but compassion, which is action, which is something that propels you to do something, can only come when you truly see people. And part of what happens when we come to Christ is that he, not only do we no longer regard Christ after the flesh, we no longer regard anybody else after the flesh. Now, when we walk around in the streets of the city, or we drive around, we see people that on the outside seem to have it all together. One of the intriguing things about being a pastor is how you are, have the privilege of being led into people's lives behind the walls. And one of the things I can tell you is that life is not the same behind the walls as it seems to be outside the walls. The gates might open and the Ferrari might pull in, and that, but once the walls close, the doors open, it's exposed to what really goes on there. And some people that I've looked in the house and said, man, they have got a great marriage. If only I had a marriage like them. Then they come sit in my lounge and thinking, thank God I don't have a marriage like them. It's like, what the heck is going on here? And uh, the reality is that, that Paul understood that we no longer see people just according to the flesh. There are only two kinds of people on the face of the earth. earth. Those that are born again through Jesus Christ, that are in a, in a reconciled relationship with their Heavenly Father and will spend eternity with them, and those that are separated from Him and are still coming to that relationship. And if they don't in this lifetime, they will die and spend an eternity in eternal conscious suffering and separated from God. Hey, Rob, that's quite hard. I agree. I don't even like the doctrine of hell. I don't, I, honestly, I don't. I mean, if I could write my own doctrines, I would write something else. So, but this is what the Scripture records, and it's what we must um, live with that reality in, into the lives that we, that that was expressed in the lives of the people. And sometimes we, we don't want to, we feel like we love people more than Jesus. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like they're fine, Jesus. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a friend of yours saying it. And you might spend hours and hours with them over years and years and years and never share the gospel with them. But you're not loving them with the love of Christ. Of course, the love of Christ compels us to act. And not just for the masses, for the individuals. In Mark 10, 21, when the rich young ruler came to him, it says that he, um, he looked at him and he loved him. He loves every individual person, no matter who they are, no matter how naughty or nasty they are, or how needy they are, he loves all of them. You look in the streets and you, you drive past the, the, um, the guy cleaning the streets, loved by Jesus Christ. You drive past the guy getting out of his Ferrari, loved by Jesus Christ. You, love, you drive past the person screaming at his wife, loved by Jesus Christ. You, every single person, God's love is for all people everywhere. And it's a yearning love. It's a love that doesn't just stay back and reach out. That's why God is the initiator of that love. And so while we were in our sins, he sent his son to die for us. There's an initiation that takes place. While we were still his enemies, he died for us. And friends, we too need to be the initiators. See, the gospel has come in for those of us that are Christ followers. And it has changed you, rescued you, reconciled you, redeemed you. And it's it's a living thing inside of you. And wherever we go, it should overflow into situations. It should lead us into yearning prayers. When we stop on the side of the road at the traffic lights, which are so, 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 so long in Dubai. Like God brought me here just to teach me patience with Dubai traffic lights. I don't know what is going on there. I'm writing letters, but no one now I'm not writing letters. But what if we sat at those traffic lights and looked around in the cars around us? That guy driving that truck, Lord, I want to pray for your gospel to break into his life. 
I want to pray for that mother with the tool in the car in front of me. I want to pray for your gospel to break in. As I walked around Sapphire Park, which well, I used to run, but it was slow enough that it could have been called walking. I used to pray as I was running, and as the people would come past me with very clearly of another religion because of what they wore, I'd be praying, Lord, I might be the only person ever prays for this lady as she comes past me. Let your gospel reach her, please. So that this yearning love that caused Christ to come, that caused him to die upon the cross, that caused him to continue to this work of reconciling should be in us and in our prayers as well. That's what drove Paul on. How many of you have seen the film um, Titanic, the Titanic, the Leonardo DiCaprio? Not too many of you. I saw it years ago, and this is one scene, which is, uh, this is not from the movie, this is a sketch, but where the ship is going down as it is there, the lifeboats have been deployed in the rush and the panic of deploying the lifeboats and some of the class struggles that were going on. If you saw it in the movie, the rich were getting onto the lifeboats first and the poor were locked downstairs until the rich were on and things like that. Whatever went on, the lifeboats weren't full when they were lowered into the water. And many people ended up leaping off the Titanic because they knew it was going down and we were sucked with it and they leapt up into this freezing cold water hoping that there would be some way for them to be saved. There were 20 lifeboats apparently that were released and there was space in all of them for more people. And there's a scene in the movie as it kind of comes from quite far where there's no noise and it, and it looks down upon the scene of this massive ship sinking and some stuff bobbing in the water. And as it begins to close in like this, as the camera narrows its focus, you begin to see that it's not things bobbing in the water, but people. And the silence gives way to the screams and the shouts for help of those that are stuck in the water and freezing to death. And none of these vessels, these ships, these rescue boats turn around, except for one. The Molly Brown is one of the, one of the main characters in the movie. says, we have to go back. And the, the officer, the first officer on that boat turns it around and they go back and they rescue, I think, four people. And many, many others died, not because there was a lack of boats to rescue them, but because people were indifferent to their plight or were more concerned with their safety. And as incredible as the gospel is, and as transformative as the gospel is, because it does change us. I mean, I do believe we become better husbands and wives. I mean, Linda still has a few things that she's got to sort out in my life, but holy moly, that list would be so long if Jesus hadn't come into my life. It would be a disaster. I'm a better father. I'm a better worker. I'm a better employer. I'm better at every because Christ comes into us and changes us. But it is possible because you and I live this at times to still become indifferent to the plights of those around us. To just be nice. To just not be attentive, not be prayerful, not to be responsive to the opportunities that come. Do not turn our ship around, as it were, and uh, be gripped and compelled by that yearning love. I was, um, where's my Hannah? Is Hannah upstairs? Hi, Hannah. Can I tell that story about when we were dropping you off the other day at your friend's house? Okay, great. So I was dropping Hannah off the other day. I don't know if I got a yes or no. And um, so I said to her, you, uh, you need to invite your friend to youth. And Hannah goes, um, she's not a Christian, she won't be allowed to come. And I said, well, that's why she must come to you. And she said, no, her, her, her dad will be really cross. And I said, baby, you, you have to share the gospel with her somehow. You've got to, God hasn't given you this access into her life just so that you can be a good friend to her and she can be a good friend to you. I said, if she 
dies apart from Jesus Christ. So you'll spend an eternity in hell. This is an urgency and an opportunity for Hannah to be the message to a friend. And I, I mean, obviously, I do believe this, that we need to live out the gospel. But friends, no one ever got saved from somebody just being nice. There is somewhere along the line the gospel has to be proclaimed. It's, it's written down in words. There's a language that expresses it. And whether you share the gospel in Russian or Korean or Afrikaans or German or whatever, Swahili, you've got to take a language that people can understand and proclaim the gospel to somebody. I sat with a friend of mine one time. In fact, he was a colleague. He became a friend later on. He'd been he'd grown up in South Africa, a Christian country. Uh, we were watching um, the thing by an angel, saved by an angel, met by an angel, but touched by an angel. I knew there was an angel. It was a series of people touched by an angel. And I thought, I said, there's no, I said do, you, uh, do you believe in angels? Yeah, whatever. So I said, have you ever heard the gospel? 20-something years old, growing up in a Christian country, had never heard the gospel. No one had ever taken the time to share with him the bad news and the good news and the invitation. I'm going to share a video and then wrap it up after this video so you guys can play that. This is, let me just put the context. Robin Jackman is a, many of you will know him as a cricket commentator. Actually, probably many of you won't know because many of you don't watch cricket at all. He's, he's, a, he's a cricket commentator, quite a famous voice on TV. And Tit Smith, who gets referred to in the story, many of you will know, he was a cricket player. And Tit has been in our church. He brought the, the choir, the live choir with him. And they sang there, I think about a year and a bit ago now. And we do some work into that village, that orphanage back in South Africa. And so just watch this video. It's a couple of minutes long. <laughs> 